Hey everybody, it's Then Again. We're here with Marie. We're going to talk about historic sites. Yes. And since last time we talked about trips to England and seeing amazing things, we're going to limit ourselves for the time being to North American, U.S., historic sites. If we must. If we must this one time. What is a historic site and why are they so important? So if you're a history nerd, and I would assume that you are to some level since you're listening to this series of diatribes from the Northeast Georgia History Center, historic sites are places that are preserved or where things happen, like battlefields or historic houses, famous sites like Independence Hall in Philadelphia, any of those things, anything where that can be tied to an event from the past or an old building that through some miracle of modern development has lasted through, it's a historic site and they're important. We'll go through some of them and as we go through some of our personal favorites, we'll talk about why there are favorites and why they're important. So Marie, why don't you kick us off and, and give us a couple of your historic sites that you have visited, love to visit, the ones maybe that you keep going back to? Well, there's one that I would love to go back to that I've only been to once, but I'm still going to claim it as my favorite. It is not necessarily a historic site, but it's a state heritage site in the state of Oregon, where my mom is from. And, you know, her mom is going all the way back because this site in Oregon is actually called is called Thompson's Mill State Heritage Site and that is my family's ancestral mill from the mid 1800s my family came into it about 1890 and then built a house there as well and a lot of other of the mill complex buildings so that's not just the state of Oregon's history it's also very personal as it is my family's history it's very tangible my grandma grew up there her father managed the warehouse in town in the very, very tiny town of Shed with two Ds. And, you know, her grandparents lived at the mill, so she was there all the time and spent weekends there, could ride her bike from their town in the house to right outside of town where the mill was, swam in the mill race, and all of these wonderful family stories, all these family pictures I have of my family at the mill. I've gone there when we had this giant family reunion where people I had never met before but apparently was related to and we we all were just you know at the mill hanging out having a good time there was the antique car club that also decided to come that day so that was fun (laughs) and I got to this is one of the moments that like my entire family like always remembers and there's like this picture of me I'm just like this tiny fourth grader and there is this wheel that you turn to open the floodgates because this mill is still operational it's the oldest operation mill east or west of the Mississippi River. So it's still like making, it can it make can product. It can make flour. Yeah. Because they've made flour and then they made farm animal feed. But their main thing was flour and it was Thompson's best flour. <laughs> and we have flour bags hanging up in all of our homes <laughs> that say that. But it was this just giant wheel and I would I grabbed onto it, spread my little arms around it and I'd like put all my body weight into it. But then you could feel the mill rattle to life and the water is flooding through the floodgates of the mill and everything starts to turn on and get power and the belts start going. And it was amazing. And just to think like my family had done that for the past hundred years and I was continuing to do that as well. Oh my gosh, that's so awesome. We should probably end with that one. We should have ended (laughs) with that one because that is so cool. Because it's not just a historic site that connects you with some thing that you've rented a book. That's that's your kin and your bloodline mm-hmm. and where you literally come from. It is. My grandma was going through and telling all these stories that not even, like, I was listening to my grandma far more than I was listening to the 
tour guide because my grandma grew up there and knew more than this guy could ever do. Well, of course, and it was so fun because they're like, oh, and then they, uh, this guy who was my grandfather was so innovative. He used baby food jars to store his, um, he, he like grilled the baby food jar lid to the board. And then he would screw in like the, the jars and be full of nails or screws or little like, uh, hardware things. And my grandma's like, oh yeah, I gave those to him. Those are your uncle Doug's baby food containers. From like the 1960s. <laughs> so it was just so tangible. And then we took a picture of my grandma and my uncle Doug like next to the baby food jars that were his. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and they let us go like down to the basement. And then my grandma's like, oh, yeah, you know, you know, we would be down here and probably, you know, we would go up into the the silos and that was probably very dangerous but you know kids were playing around up there and right so who so manages that is it a state site so now? it's a state heritage site so the state of oregon has done a really good job of restoring it and managing it wow that's fascinating mm-hmm. i wasn't expecting that one that's really good yeah i don't yeah i don't have anything nearly that <laughs> cool uh, i don't have any historic sites that are tied directly to to anything from my past most of my um sites uh being a military historian are tied to military history usually. That's how my family, that's how I'm able to function when the family decides to go to the beach or something like that <laughs> is because I'm not a big fan of the beach, but close to the ocean, there's always coastal fortifications. So coastal fortifications are something that, that I'll go to a lot, especially down, you know, in Georgia, near Savannah and Tybee Island, there's all kinds of forts down there. There's Fort Pulaski, there's Old Fort Jackson, there's Fort Screven and things down there that you can see. So visiting just forts in general, I love because you can see even those three that I just mentioned down in Savannah you can see the progress of a very young nation because the first fort was built down there in 1812 to try to fend off those British ships coming in during the war of 1812 or at least the proposed British invasions all the way up to almost 1900 with Fort Screven being something that was very active during the Spanish-American War. And so you see this this history of America through its military forts. But a lot of other sites, too, I've found, again, as, I, as I've gotten older and, and my interests have expanded out, there's lots of really neat sites that I think have done a good job building up different aspects of life. And I've fallen in, lo- in love with some of these working farms and ways to tell there's a great place going into the uh, Smoky Mountains National Park, which of, of course is a fantastic place. It's history, it's you know biopreserves, it's everything up there. But there's a place just before you get in there that's the Smoky Mountain Heritage Site, and they've moved original buildings there, and they basically have an Appalachian farmstead set up. And you can go in there and see all the different structures, how they were built, how they were used, sort of like your your mill thing, mm-hmm. only they're they're not associated with each other, unfortunately. They've mm-hmm. they've been moved there, they have some provenance. But I think one of the reasons I like that is because while it may not be a direct link to some of my ancestors, I know that the folks who were my ancestors were gonna live and work in places exactly like those historic structures. So what, I mean, so besides that great family connection, do you have anything closer than the Pacific Ocean that you like? Uh, you mean on this side of the country? Uh, yeah, on this side of the country. Um, we'll try to limit that. There. Are... Oh, no, you can still talk oh. about anything west of the Mississippi. I'm just... Just a little closer. Just, I'm just pulling you in just closer. Pull me back a little bit. A little bit. I've been to a lot of things on the East Coast, and I've been to Colorado, and then I've been to the West Coast. So I have I don't have much uh, personal experience <laughs> with the mid, the middle of America. So I'm I'm going to come back to things that perhaps people who live in 
northeast Georgia could get to on a day's drive. I'm going to actually say three because there are three that come to mind. This is because I love historic preservation. I love historic architecture, especially like the Greek Revival, the Gothic Revival, a lot of that 1800s architecture. And someone sitting at this table has a certificate in historic preservation. It is true. I do. From the University of Georgia, uh, I have a certificate in historic preservation. They have a wonderful program there, and I loved it. I loved every second of it. So much great stuff that came from that, and that's where I've always loved old buildings, but now I know how to talk about why I love old buildings, and some of those old buildings would be the best Greek Revival architecture in the state of Georgia, possibly in the southeast, is the old governor's mansion in Milledgeville, Georgia, which has been very nicely restored. I actually toured that with my historic preservation program uh, with the the director there, which was very, very educational and telling the stories of the people free and enslaved who work there, as well as the architectural history and significance. Um, the room that Sherman used as his headquarters, or at least slept in one night while he was marching to Savannah. So there's a lot of history there that's of things that happened there, as well as just the building itself being really pretty and being a fantastic example of Greek Bible architecture. There's also a house in Macon that I really love called the Hay House, which is sometimes referred to as the Castle of the South. And it's a beautiful Italianate structure, which had running water and a heating and air system. I'm not sure about an air system, but they had like, it was like gas lighting. Like it was highly advanced for when it was built in the 1850s. And I was like, if I lived back then, I could live in this house, and it would be about as comfortable as my modern house. And an interesting side note about the history of that house, that's the first museum job that I ever put in for that I was turned down Oh, for. nice. I put in at the Hay House for a uh, docent, and they turned me down. Oh. So a little bit of personal history there. Thanks for bringing that up, Marie. <laughs> But they have the most beautiful cupola. They really do. It's the best cupola I have ever seen. And you can go up there and see, like, all around Macon. I adore their cupola. It's the best cupola that I've ever been able to go up to. They charge you extra money to go up into the cupola, though, which I thought Non-profits was Nonprofits got to make money somehow. I know. So I, I don't mind giving them money to preserve the pretty old houses, but they'll charge me extra money. <laughs> and then I also really love Biltmore. If we're talking about big, pretty old houses... Biltmore is probably the one that's the most giant, massive, pretty thing that we have in the Southeast, I would say, because it's literally a modern, I say, quote unquote, modern. It was built in the 1890s, but modern in the sense of it is a French chateau that has been picked up and put in the mountains of North Carolina. And, uh, well, not actually, they built it to look like a French chateau, just in case anyone had a vision of airplanes in the 1890s bringing over a French chateau. (laughs) But it's this beautiful, beautiful house that is this idea of quote-unquote modern American luxury meshed with this old European style. And it's just the most massive thing where you're like, they had a lot of money that they didn't know what to do with. Well, and and that's the point. So it's it's the the house of the Vanderbilts, which were a big railroad magnate family. And they built this incredible estate which is you just walk into it and you're like wow well and a big part of Asheville grew up basically to support that estate's functioning right Mm -hmm. yes and they even built like the Vanderbilts put money in to build the local church that was there that the workers at the estate 
could attend and a lot of what it seemed to be back in the the early days of the estate is everyone in the town somehow was connected to the estate, working at the estate, working for the estate in some various role or supported people who did. Now Marie's talking about all these hoity-toity fancy houses, like and I'm talking about houses. log cabins and barns, but that's okay. Because <laughs> uh, one of the, the favorite places I've been to is, of course, Monticello. And my mm. man, Mr. J, getting to walk around that place is absolutely fascinating. We've got a young lady named Ashley Hollinshead, who was an intern here and who is now in on the interpretation staff up there. Ooh. Very proud of that. But it's a it, of course, is a fantastic place and is tied to a lot of, uh, of America's early history. But something you had mentioned before that a lot of historic sites have been working on the last decade or two is trying to tell a more inclusive story Mm -hmm. and trying to tell the story of the different populations who live there, specifically and especially the enslaved populations, because a lot of these early big houses, of course, were owned by people who were wealthy enough to also own slaves to work their land. And so that's one of the great trends, I think, is creating these story, not creating the stories, but telling the stories so that you've got a lot of different perspectives that come together in the architecture. And they've also done a good job with showing the main house, you know, Jefferson's house, Monticello, as well as some of the, the quote, more primitive structures down on Mulberry Row, which was one of the main areas that the slaves that were actually on that estate lived. And that's your old log cabins and things that, that I love. But, you know, interpret how to interpret these sites can be really challenging. And we've sort of stuck with, so far, places that have buildings on them, like the mill site, like the home sites, you know, like, like the cabins. But there's a lot of historic sites out there, and most of these tend to be battlefields where it's just big open fields or big open woods. And those are also really neat. I know you've been to a ton of those, oh, especially so many. With, the, with the Civil War stuff. And um, But, you know, to a certain extent, a lot of people don't like those. Because there is sometimes nothing there to see. Except the monuments. Except the monuments. Some some of the places don't even have monuments, though. Some of the, quote, well, like the one I just went to this weekend that you were telling me you'd already been to, <gasps> yes. Kettle Creek, right? It's, it's There's a monument there, and then it's that's it. Most of the time I'm okay with a big open field because I feel like that way you get the idea of just how big an army it would be to take up this field and... This is a field that has been to steal from Abraham Lincoln. Sanctified, Sanctified, you could say, hollowed yes. ground, it has borne blood and guts and tears of people who fought and died here for different causes that they believed that were worth dying for. And I think that in itself is very moving. But then you go to Kettle Creek and it's, there's not even a field necessarily. It's just kind of It's a lot of woods. Because that's what the battlefield was at the time. Yeah. And, you know, and it can be a challenge for some of these places to to stay open and to, and to just maintain it because it is woods, which means that it has to be... How do you be, interpret woods? Yeah. And, that you know, you've got interpretive signage that has to be weatherproof. You have to encourage people to go out into the middle of nowhere. You have to encourage people to go into the woods, which my mom and I were not about to go do. <laughs> we were like, we have just driven an hour. We were actually on our way from Washington, uh, Georgia, to visit other historical houses that were there. And then we just kind of saw signs and attempted to follow them until we're like, are we in the right place? Right. So you so you did not go there for the purposes of visiting the battlefield. No. You happened upon it. Yeah. And see, that can be really tricky. Bigger places like locally, Kennesaw and mm-hmm. Chickamauga and places like that are national park sites. They have big visitor centers with museum displays and audiovisual presentations that tell you the story. And some of these smaller ones, you know, have challenges to, to, to help the public understand the significance of the events that happen there, much less 
the the challenges of keeping enough money in the coffers, whether it's a, a you know a, a private nonprofit that's keeping it going or a, or a small small municipality to just preserve it and and keep it from being developed. You know, and and a, and a great local example of that just outside Atlanta is Pickett's Mill Battlefield. I have been to Pickett's Mill, and it is fantastic. It is, it, but, but here's the thing. They do find, it's a state site. They did get a visitor center built, but it was, quote, not that significant a battle. What happened was Sherman's army got beat so bad because he made a tactical error and tried to cover it up. So there was not a lot of kadoo about it back in Washington or in the official records. But this was a huge defeat for for Sherman because it was, like I said, it was just a bad idea. So the battlefield was just empty. And back in the 60s during the centennial, some very interested folks, including Wilbur Kurtz and folks like that, created a nonprofit to buy the property up. Well, thank goodness they did because when you go there now, the battlefield itself is pristine. There's not a single monument on it. It's just the woods and the, and the topography hasn't changed in Iota. But you get to the park boundaries on every single side, now there are subdivisions or a strip mall or something like that. And so these historic sites are always in danger of losing the you may, you know, you may actually preserve the site, but what's around it can really harsh that historic buzz and totally mess up the interpretation that you could or couldn't do. Mm-hmm. So those places always have challenges. So if you get a chance, see if you can go to those historic sites, see what kind of associations help support them. And if you enjoy them, you know, th- throw a coin to your witcher. Just, you know, send, send a check for 5 or $10 or something and thank them for keeping it going, uh, whether it's a battlefield or a historic house, or pay that extra money to go up into the cupola. It's a great view. We need to do another episode where Marie ranks American cupolas from 1 to 20. I am so ready for that. <laughs> Is the Northeast Georgia History Center ready to fund my trips to visit cupolas? No. <laughs> but we'll encourage the private research to do that. Oh, that's all the time we've got, folks. Thanks for tuning in to Then Again. And until next time, we hope everyone has a very historic experience somewhere. See you soon. Bye. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Did you know that the History Center has a new digital membership option? For as little as $3 a month or $35 a year, you can receive invites to special members-only live streams, podcasts, video lessons, and more. Register at www.negahc.org member.